Welcome to the 90 Minutes or Less Film Fest. My name is Sam Clements and this is the podcast that celebrates films with a 90 minute or less runtime. In each episode, a guest will select a film and join me to add to our ongoing fictional film festival. Today, we're joined by director Justin Simeon, the filmmaker behind Dear White People, Bad Hair and this year's Haunted Mansion. Welcome to the podcast, Justin. Thank you. Good to be here. Thank you for, for, for joining us today. I know you've got a lot going on with the release of Haunted Mansion. <laughs> uh, so a pleasure to talk to you about an under 90 minute picture. My pleasure, actually. I love this movie and I love... Uh, have we have we given the movie away yet? Have we said that yet? Have we well, it's kind of in the episode title, but for this bit of the conversation, maybe we can pretend we haven't. Okay, okay. Cool, cool. <laughs> I'll be sitting on it like a secret then. <laughs> I've been following your career, you know, since Dear White People, which was in Sundance 2014, I want to say, 2014. Yes, maybe? yeah. And since then you've done, a, you know, the, the, obviously the movie and then a TV show and then Bad Hair and, and then working up to, to Haunted Mansion. It feels like you've covered a lot of ground in, in less than 10 years. <laughs> I, you know, I've been wanting to be, I've been wanting to make movies my whole life. Um, and I'm also maybe too keenly uh, aware of how opportunity shakes differently for people of color, for queer people, uh, than it does for other folks. And so, you know, once I was actually able to get in that door, it was, it was really hard to kind of temper my excitement. You know, movies are, it's a long con, as they say. It takes a really long time to make a single movie. Um, and also, to get the opportunity to make a movie, you have to kind of be in development mode all of the time on a bunch of projects. Um, and so, yeah, I didn't want to waste any time once I once I was able to get in there. No, I, I love that. And I think your films will have like a big energy to them. Like it sort of feels like there's lots of ideas with every one of your films. Yeah. Uh, and I imagine you know, that's just sort of like a little glimpse inside your head. Yeah. <laughs> you know? it's, I think um, being a filmmaker is sort of my nervous system's way of solving the problem of having so much to communicate <laughs> and not quite having the words to do it. You know, knowing that like it, it, it will require a bit of a story or it will require a journey or a set of images or sound or something uh, to communicate the idea. Um, and and I think as I as I grew up and, and sort of fell in love with, with different filmmakers and different movies, like I fell in love with the ones that are filled with really big ideas that like if, as you watch them over and over again, it, they continue to open up and tease out different parts and different aspects that, you know, maybe even eluded you that first watch. Absolutely. I mean, I'm a, a big fan of really getting under the skin of films. Yeah. Uh, and and I, yeah, I love being able to rewatch something. And I think all of your work has, you know, rewards rewatching. Yes, absolutely. And, and you know, it's, so at some points, like some of my work is sort of like I'm so obsessed with the, the repeated watches that I, you know, I have to remember people have to watch it for a first time. <laughs> <laughs> and so maybe some of the, the obscure things I maybe need to pull a little bit more forward. That's usually, you know, what I'm addressing after my first cut of things. <laughs> 
With uh, Haunted Mansion, it's a ride I'm a big fan of. Big fan of your work. Also a big fan of the writer Katie Dippold. Yes. Um, at what point did you come on board to this? Was Katie already attached? Was there a oh, screenplay? Oh, yeah. She or? had already, you know, worked out a screenplay. She, there was some work we did on it uh, after I came on board. But by and large, the story was there. And the themes of grief and, and her way in, which I thought was so funny and so dry. And so, you know, I found this protagonist that she created on the page who was so snarky and kind of hated people and was like going through grief and was such a reluctant hero. I found him so relatable. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I just, um, I thought she had a wonderful uh, way of bringing us into this mansion. Um, and I felt like her tone was perfectly aligned with the tone of the ride. Uh, and yeah, I mean, what a dream to honestly get something so fully formed and realized and, and to realize my job basically is to protect this thing and to realize this thing and to make sure that audiences feel everything I feel the first time I read it. That, that was such a wonderful opportunity. I'm such a fan of her work, you know, yes. from the heat to Ghostbusters. Same. And, you know, seeing, you know, that sort of humor come through in Haunted Mansion. Yeah, it <laughs> felt really simpatico, you know. It felt like the kind of stuff that I was doing on Dear White People. And it also felt like it required the kind of things that I was learning how to do on Bad Hair. We are a podcast that celebrates films with an under 90 minute runtime. And I was wondering, you know, for you as a filmmaker, at what point do you start to think about how long the finished movie might be? Whew. I, you know, I, more and more I started to think about it from the beginning because it, my work always ends up longer than I intended to. And then I have to figure out in post-production what needs to be removed. And I think it comes from on the beginning stage, like I want to make sure everything that I'm thinking of finds a space somewhere in here. But the movies that like I go back to over and over again, especially when they're under 90 minutes, there's a magic to them because they're, they've been boiled down to their absolute essential moviness. <laughs> you know, there's something, there's something about that particular runtime that just suits um, a movie. And not that really long movies aren't great too, and, and there's plenty that I absolutely adore, but I'm a little obsessed with it. And so now, when I, when I sit down to develop a project, I'm already thinking about runtime in a way that I, I just wasn't when I first started making films. I guess you can sort of see even by just looking at how thick a screenplay is. Like, yeah. mm, that might need to come yeah. out a little bit. <laughs> and you sort of, um, I think also too, when you start to make a career of making movies, you read so much and you watch so much and you just get tired of some of the superfluous things or the tropes or the, you know, it just, uh, my patience has worn thin. And that said, when I do, like I just saw Tar, for, which is not a 90 minute movie at all. Uh, and I didn't, you know, it, it came out at a weird time in the industry. I was working on Haunted Mansion. It, it, it was really hard to actually like just stop everything and watch the movie. And obviously it has a very lengthy runtime and all that. And I finally put it on and I was like, this is worth every second of its runtime. That, that is totally a valid length for that film. It depends on what you're trying to do. 100%. I'm a big fan of a film should be as long as it needs to be. Exactly. And that's where the magic trick comes. You know, yes. If it's, if it's done right, any film will feel like an under 90 minute Correct. movie. Correct. Correct. You look at something like Lawrence of Arabia, yeah. <laughs> which never ends. And yet it is absolute perfection. Nothing should be cut. No notes, you know. Uh, but then Punch Drunk Love, which is a movie that like you never remember as a short movie. But it, I don't even think it's under 90. It might be just it's over 90. Yeah. But it's one of those. It's like I've been on a whole journey with this movie and only this much time has passed. Thank you. Like, you almost feel grateful when a great movie is, is 90 minutes. Like I, I got everything I needed and yet I still have like the rest of my my day it's still <laughs> daylight evening. when you come out of the cinema yeah exactly <laughs> 
So when when we started talking about coming onto the podcast and and maybe picking you know a film for you to talk about with us, what went through your head? Did you did you have to do some research or did something come to mind straight away? Well, you know what's funny? There's a list of movies that I, I was able to flip through because again, there's movies that I remember as under ninety minutes that couldn't have ended fast enough, and then there are movies that I just love and I don't have any idea how long they are. Uh, but I I knew that you know Ernst Lubitsch, who is one of my favorite filmmakers and I think one of the great important filmmakers that we don't talk about enough what is so incredible about all of his work is how succinct it is because his his scenes are rather extravagant and some of them can go on for a while and there's a lot that he's building with and playing with that's a filmmaker with a lot of ideas talk about a lot of nested ideas in a movie um, and yet he achieves them so succinct, you, you never feel like they overstay their welcome. So I knew I needed to kind of be in that court. And when I realized that Trouble in Paradise both was under 90 minutes, which I did not remember, and that it hadn't been chosen yet, it, it sort of was like, I, it was an irresistible choice for me. I, I just, that's one of his best movies or one of my favorite of his. And I think it's so accessible and yet not enough people know about it. Trouble in Paradise is a 1932 American pre-code romantic comedy film directed by Ernst Lubitsch, starring Miriam Hopkins, Kay Francis, and Herbert Marshall, based on the 1931 play The Honest Finder by Hungarian playwright Laszlo Aladar. The lead characters are a gentleman thief, Gaston, a lady pickpocket, Lily, who join forces to con a beautiful woman, Madame Colette, who is the owner of a perfume company. When Gaston becomes romantically entangled with Madame Colette, their ruse is jeopardised and Gaston is forced to choose between two beautiful women. 83 minutes long. There you go. I guess that's a good sort of general outline um, here. But the plot, you know, is is sort of the focus, but it's not really the main focus of the yes. film. It sort of moves the story along enough. But for me, it's those delicious performances. Oh, my God. <laughs> Ernst Lubitsch just can't be topped. I mean, honestly, like, he really is responsible for... So many things that we love about movies, um, but I, what you can find at the center of almost all of his movies, but certainly the ones that we talk about, are not only these great performances, but these great duos. You know, there's usually a pair of lovers who either belong together but refuse to be together, or for plot reasons, need to be together, but really would rather not. And you love to see them fight and fall in love. And he comes up with all of these reasons why you get to see that happen over and over and over again, but that's essentially what what it is. And he's able to string incredibly complicated plot mechanics and ideas and gags and cinema on just the appeal of wanting two people to either get together or fight. <laughs> and I just think that that's genius. Absolutely. I feel like he, I guess he was an actor himself, and I think yes. that might show up in, in his work, and he's worked on the stage. I think all of his films would work maybe on stage with no props and no sets whatsoever, just the actors. But then he brings them to life. <laughs> Absolutely. He also has that connection to the Yiddish theater, which is important because, um, you know, cinema has evolved so much since the early days, but when it first began, there was this understanding that, like, it needed to have uh, a few, what they used to call attractions, like, reasons to see it, Think, like, little bits that were entertaining throughout, and, you know, he having that Yiddish theater background, you, you, you get instinctively what will work and what won't for audiences. And, and his instincts are so clear 
and so like well refined and, and you can just feel them because the stuff that you mentioned that plot synopsis, none of the none of it seen no matter how much you talk about an Ernst Lubitsch film, you can't quite get at why they're so good and why they're so sticky. And I think that comes from just like a lifetime of entertaining audiences, you know, right there and, and, and living and dying by the response you were gonna get for that crowd because these performances you don't even know how to do that anymore, you know. No, not at all. I think he's the, one of the king of putting obstacles in front of characters. Yes. You know, they need to do this. But what about if this? Oh, and yes. then the whole film is a series of that. Well, it's sort of like he, you know, again, some of those really, especially the pre-code films, but even some of the code films, like, he, he's almost gleeful about, like, setting the setup, knowing that, like, you know, Yes, these two people obviously have to fall in love in order for the movie to conclude. Movies like The Merry Widow or To Be or Not To Be and even this one, you, you sort of understand that the will they, won't they will end the movie. And yet, <laughs> complication after complication after twist after twist, he can introduce because he knows he's got you on the hook. The minute he, he, he gets you enough around the, the, the couple, whoever the couple, he, he tends to do, deal with pairs of couples too that sort of mix and and has this wonderfully subversive kind of attitude towards romantic love and relationships and stuff. But once you, once the audience gets a taste of that couple, whoever they are, in this case, uh, you know, it is the gentleman thief and the pickpocket. When you get a taste of their chemistry, what it's like for them to fight and fall back in love, those two things in particular, and it's really good, well, then he knows he's got you. And you, you spend the whole movie hoping to get back to that, that point. And it's, Ugh, ugh, I just, uh, I just, he, he's a filmmaker when I watch him, I just, I make that sound a lot. I just, it's so good. It's sort of a good lesson, I think, for screenwriters or other filmmakers to watch because in this film, especially, he shows us kind of the ending five minutes in, you know, this couple are so good. They get together five minutes in, the sign goes on the door because it's pre-code film. Yes. The door closes, do not disturb. Okay. Yes. But then he spends the rest of the film keeping them apart from of each course. other. Of course, yes. Uh, and, and, and it's that once, by that point, the audience, so like you say, you know, we are, we are, we are we're following this film hook, line, and sinker. <laughs> yes, and, and he trades that in different movies. Like in this movie, the plot has everything to do with the, um, the you know, the setup, the, the, the trying to, to con uh, this other person. But sometimes he does it where it's like the con artist needs to make somebody fall in love with them in order for the movie to, you know, to get on. So the love story becomes the A story. But he's always playing with that, with that idea, you know, of, um, again, this irresistible pair that you can't bear to see separated for too long. You have your money? I don't want your money. You wanted to buy him for 50 francs. Well, you can have him for nothing. And you, Lily. leave me alone. You were willing to sacrifice a hundred thousand francs for her. And you, you paid a hundred and twenty-five thousand francs for a handbag. Well, you can pay a hundred thousand for him. Goodbye, Madame Collet and company. Do you remember when you first watched Trouble in Paradise? Oh my gosh, it was film school. Oh wow. Yeah, it was film school. And I and I kind of forgot about it, really, until recently. I had just finished shooting uh, A Haunted Mansion, actually. And I just wanted to cleanse the palette a bit and, and watch some old movies. And there was this wonderful podcast, What Would Lubitsch Do?, that I started listening to. And, and, and that podcaster, you know, began with the beginning, like the silent movies, the stuff that you can't even find. And I found myself just sort of watching along. And once I caught up to the podcast, I really couldn't stop. And so I just sort of revisited uh, all the Lubitsch titles again and just realized how central he is to how I understand filmmaking as an art form. 
do you think Lubitsch has inspired your own filmmaking in, in, in some, some way? Absolutely. The, the so-called Lubitsch touch. I was <laughs> fascinated by that in film school. And what, what it basically comes down to is he communicates via cinema so many things that have so many layers to add to the dialogue, okay? The Lubitsch touch refers to um, his film's ability to allude to something that you, the audience member, sort of fill in the blanks with your own imagination. And that is the magic of cinema. Cinema is, is a magic trick. It is sort of like as close to telepathy as humans have figured out how to be. We can literally introduce an idea or a situation or a feeling into other people's heads, but you have to leave like the, 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 the final equation up to the audience. And he takes you right to that edge. And he, he, he tells you so many things that the actors never say. And that the, you know, is never given to you in narration or in, you know, the sort of titles that come before. He gives it just to you. It's like the movie has a secret to tell you. And um, it is the most exhilarating way to use cinema, I think. And uh, I, I love watching his films just to remember what's possible. You can actually communicate quite a bit of complicated uh, stuff through cinema that you can't really do through dialogue alone uh, or even just through a picture alone um, And it's quite remarkable. He's, he's just the master of that I think he does a good job with working with his uh, you know His heads of department his costume designer his set designers, you know those they look amazing on the cinema screen yes, But yes. those big art deco costumes and sets they also tell the audience so much about the characters Absolutely, and, and I'm a fan of that too. I mean, I think you see that in Haunted Mansion Although it's not like I walked in and said I want to do this like Lubitsch does it But <laughs> you should definitely do that on your next film. Yeah, exactly <laughs> But why not? Because he's the master. And, and what Lubitsch would do is he would give his department heads space to be artists. But the, the goal was clear. The story goal was clear. What the costumes had to communicate was clear. What the sets had to communicate was clear. You know, in my opinion, nothing in the frame is wasted. Nothing is just there for quote-unquote atmosphere or quote-unquote production design or production value. Everything is a, has a potential to help you tell your story and communicate something to an audience, even if it's subliminal. The, you, you know the artist is going to be paying attention to the dialogue and to the literal action that's taking place in front of them, but you're constantly processing everything on screen, and it's it's to me, it's, it's really fun. It, it makes the job of being a director um, so much more involved than simply like playing, being a traffic cop or sort of getting the performance right, you know, which is also important. But yeah, I, lo I, lo I, love, I love using all the, all the bells and whistles that come along with it. He's a big um, user of doors. Yes. <laughs> oh my God, you know, People being off screen and on screen and yes. going in and out. And right entrances, here. he understands the power of an entrance on camera. Again, I think that comes from from his understanding of the Yiddish theater, but just the background of the theatrical background in general. You know, filmmakers who got, especially ones like him, you know, you look at a movie like Cabaret, I just have to say this, and the Weimar Republic that you see in that movie, that's the freaky environment that Lubitsch comes out of. And he takes he takes a very queer and wild and scandalous sort of understanding of what the arts can do. And he figures out a way how to do that within the confines of a Hollywood career. So that's really inspiring to me because, you know, I'm a queer uh, filmmaker, but I, I, I come out of the world of, of the theater. And that's where I sort of like realize, oh my God, the arts are for me. Uh, and, and there's so much that I want to communicate, but also you have to play within a market. There's only certain things that the market is making <laughs> and that audiences will or won't see. And uh, he, he has an incredible lesson, I think, for how to be an artist in a space like that, uh, I think for me as well.
Absolutely. I've I, I read someone describing you know, his films are set in Lubitsch land. Yes. And they do, you know, you can sort of put a series of stills together and hang them on your wall. You yes. know, like they have this sort of look to them. Which is another quality of his that I, I love and and sort of gravitate to in my work. None of, nothing that I make quite takes place in exactly the real world. Um, I think I first understood that through, you know, a lot of the conversation around Hitchcock, because the Hitchcock movies really take place in a kind of movie world where, like, everything from the rear projection being very obvious uh, to some of those matte paintings, it all makes sense. And you see that kind of play out in what Wes Anderson does. Um, but Lubitsch really for, for, is the start of that for me because he began his career as a director before production design was even being used that way in movies. It just technologically, that wasn't sort of where the movies were at when he started. So you see him kind of develop this idea that a movie can take place in a timeless reality uh, between the clothes and the technology and even the names of the countries that his movies take place in, uh, you sort of feel like, oh, I can completely escape into this dream world. And so even though he, he takes you to big comedic highs, he's able to introduce some really intense ideas as well. Uh, ideas that I think are quite progressive uh, and subversive, uh, but you're okay with it because you're just, you're in this fantastical world. And how that translates to a career like mine is in Dear White People, you know, I understood we're talking about race and racism. So this world has to be delicious to be in. That's why the world of Dear White People doesn't feel quite like the real world, even though we're dealing with very real world issues. Uh, same with bad hair. Obviously, we don't live yet <laughs> in a world where we can become sentient and sort of take over, uh, you know, Hollywood executives and stuff. But maybe one day. Uh, but while you're there, uh, you're able to kind of hear a story about belonging and race and, and gender and all these things that like maybe wouldn't be as palatable if you weren't in a horror camp universe. Absolutely. And I think because this film was, was made in that sort of pre-code era, yes. you can tell Lubitsch is really sort of having fun, you know, seeing what he, I don't know if he's even trying to like see what he can get away with. He's just telling the story the way he thinks it needs to be told. Yes. And also, I mean, the ending of it is so yeah. cheeky. I mean, he's so <laughs> cheeky. I think even the funny thing about Lubitsch is even when he can get away with it, he still prefers to be a bit cheeky. You know, because, again, he, he allows you, the audience, to be in on the joke. You always come up with the punchline in a Lubitsch film. He, he does the setup, and he does it so that you know it's all intentional, but then he allows you to go like, oh, well, how did he get her undergarments in his hand, you know, at the end of that movie, or whatever the case may be uh, in a Lubitsch film. Um, they're, they're sort of like... There's some movies where you have to really fight to lean into and work really hard to interpret. Uh, with a Lubitsch movie, he gets you to play along with the movie and it feels effortless, you know? Uh, it, it's He's such a brilliant filmmaker. It's that sort of comforting, welcoming you in. You're kind of in on the joke. Yes. It's absolutely right. You know, he's just sort of giving you the setup and your head does the punchline. Absolutely. <laughs> and you start to work for the movie. You start to actively think about what's going to happen next. Is she going to hear that? What about that? You, you start to do it. And, and it's he didn't have to force you. You didn't have to be told by a bunch of critics to do it or, you know, read something about the deeper meaning in it. And I, by the way, I love those directors too. I mean, there's nothing like watching a Stanley Kubrick movie for me than reading like a bunch of essays on it and then re-watching it to see all the things that I missed. But think about Lubitsch, you're doing that already because he's, he's already kind of hooked you. Absolutely. 
Uh, he's so good at casting. Yes. So, you know, all of his films, you know, he's worked with Garbo, he's worked with James Stewart in this film. Uh, we've got Miriam Hopkins, we've got Kay Francis, and an amazing performance from uh, Herbert Marshall. Yes. Um, Herbert Marshall was someone who came from the stage, and I can just sort of imagine him and Lubitsch getting on, yes. you know, like a house on fire. Yes, and and I I think um I think I must appreciate that too because uh, again I I learned how to direct in a theater setting. I went to performing arts high school in uh, Houston, Texas, and the thing that you th this idea that there's no small parts that really gets drilled into your head, and especially when you understand that Lubitsch was an actor, uh, and you can see him actually in a lot of his early movies, and it's. It's wild because he is such a hammy, like delicious, silent movie actor who plays a type, you know, really hard for camera. Um, but you get this sense that, like, uh, when you're learning about acting and directing in the theater, like, your perform it's not about you. It, your performance serves as kind of like an integral part of this much bigger thing called the story. And, uh, and and so to figure out what your parameters are and to go as nuts as you want, as long as it's in those parameters that serve the story, that's like a thing that like you just feel from all of the performances in a Lubitsch movie. You get the sense, you know, I wanna think that that comes from that theatrical background, uh, but also from the fact that Lubitsch as an actor understands that like, you are an instrument and your job is to play certain notes uh, and all of those notes together equal the movie. It's not just about the solos, although, you know, th there can be some wonderful solos, but that a solo does not make a movie, uh, you know, or does it make a, a song or a quartet or a symphony? I don't know. I'm running out of analogy. <laughs> Uh, words, but I think you get what I'm saying. And he's so good at, even though the cast is rounded out with some really great, you know, sort of bit parts and supporting actors, it just, it's about that relationship. In this film, it's three actors. And I think that's why the 83 minutes feels like a full meal and leaves, you know, you, you've been on a real journey with these characters because we've seen them literally go around the houses that's right. uh, together to get to their end point. That's right. And you've seen them, um, you know, the joy of an ensemble is in full display in this movie because you get to see them together, but then you get to see them sort of in different pairings throughout. Um, it's just a lot of fun. And, and you really get the sense that like, that, that, that sort of like basic marriage plot, will they or won't they? These sort of things that are, are kind of like, they're cliche now. Uh, you see him sort of using that, that to their maximum capacity uh, in a very informed uh, and brilliant way. If we had to show a clip from this film, you know, what would be your favorite? The ending clip, <laughs> the ending clip where they sort of like, you know, uh, I don't I don't even want to get a, give it away. Just like Google like the ending of Trouble in Paradise and watch these two. Uh, it, oh, it's just delicious. And, and boy, does it go out with like just a wonderful, charming, cheeky laugh, you know? I'm so uh, thrilled to have Trouble in Paradise in our 90 Minutes or Less Film Fest. I think it's our first Lubitsch. There are other under 90 Minute Lubitsch films out there, though, listeners. So, you know, hopefully we can feature some more. Yes. And 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 even, you know, for the festival or otherwise, there are plenty of short Lubitsches. Absolutely. Yeah, it's true. <laughs> He's really good at that, too. <laughs> As part of our, you know, we are a film festival. We love showing movies on the big screen. If I could give you a print of Trouble in Paradise and a, a blank check to hire a movie yes, theater, where would you like to screen Trouble in Paradise? God, as close to my house as possible. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know what? I, I got to say, the best, <laughs> I, I watched, um, uh, not a 90-minute movie, Sweet Charity, which is a movie I've seen a million times, but I saw it on the big screen at um, Skywalker Ranch where we mix the sound. 
there may not be a better theater in the world, which is terrible because you go there and you mix and you make you master your movie and it'll just never look and sound that good again. And I know that there are some quite historic places and this one is not open to the public, but my God, what an amazing theater. We watched like a Blu-ray of Sweet Charity and it, it was like watching it for the first time. It just blew me away. So I'd have to take it there. So nothing quite like it. I mean, we, could do it. we could arrange an open day maybe with the good folks. I uh, would love it. Let's go. I am serious. I will invite people. It will be a thing. That, that movie is fantastic. Drinks and snacks are part of the cinema experience. If, if you could sort of cater for the audience, yes. uh, what would you like to uh, people to eat and drink whilst watching Drunken oh Paradise? Oh my gosh. Well, obviously you got to have the popcorn. You know, I'm a big fan of a nice pre-movie cocktail too. So uh, for me, an old-fashioned, a deliciously made old-fashioned before I see an old movie uh, is one of my favorites. Uh, and then I'm kind of a candy guy. Like, I, I like sweets. Um, I like uh, fruity candies, <laughs> especially like jelly beans. Uh, so uh, I'd have to pass that out just because that's what I want. No, I think I mean, this is your show, so absolutely, <laughs> we'll do this. I think that's right. You know, you want to maybe have like, a drink or two before Lubitsch. Yeah. He's a cheeky filmmaker, and then his films are so feel good. Of course you need candy. That's right. <laughs> See, that's, that's what I'm talking about. Um, yeah, I think that, that's that's my classic movie movie meal. Okay, so Trouble in Paradise at Skywalker Ranch. We're going to have some old fashions yes. and some, some jelly beans and some candy. Uh, this is going to be an amazing Screen. I can't wait so for our financers, whoever they are, to, <laughs> to pay for this evening. Uh, I will be there with bells on. <laughs> uh, oh, that's awesome, Justin. Thank you so much for picking uh, Trouble in Paradise for us uh, on the podcast today. Listeners, go and watch Trouble in Paradise, God, whatever you're doing. It's you so will be good. so glad you did. I don't care. You're going to be like, oh my God, it's an old movie. Promise you, best movie you've seen all year. <laughs> uh, and you know, as this podcast goes out, Haunted Mansion is in cinemas. Another great film to see on yes. the big screen. Uh, but listeners, after seeing Haunted Mansion, I do recommend going back. Dear White People, as, as Justin talked about, and Bad Hair, both deserve uh, you know to be seen with Thank a crowd. Thank you very much. I appreciate that. Because you know, it's funny. You, people ask like, well, how did you get to this? If you go back and you watch those two movies, I think you kind of get it. <laughs> Actually, <laughs> the maths equation. <laughs> yeah, it, it, it's a clear through line, I think, to this movie. Hey, that would make for a fun triple bill. Oh my Someone god! Someone needs to put that out. Let's there. do it. Let's go, man. That'd be fun too. <laughs> uh, awesome. Thank you, Justin. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe on your podcatcher of choice. You can rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and Spotify, or if you've got a mo, share an episode with your friends. Every recommendation helps. You can contact us on our website, 90minfilmfest.com, and on Twitter and Instagram, at 90minfilmfest. The podcast is produced by me, Sam Clements, and Louise Owen. It's edited by Louise Owen, with sound mixing and additional editing by Luke Smith. Our music is by Martin Ostwick, and our artwork is by Sam Gilby. We'll be back in a couple of weeks. We're a proud member of the Stripped Media Network.